Let me just say, The Fall of Constantinople is one of the best pieces of history reading that you can do, in the sense it's it's so dramatic. The, the uh, lead-up to it, the description of the battle, it was a seven-week-long siege, the methods that were used, the intense fighting on both sides, the way that people came together, is, is just, it's very moving. It's impossible to read these accounts and not to be moved. This is the Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Dozier. When I first started working on my dissertation, this was in the 90s when I was doing this, and uh, the whole idea of East versus West, it seemed very quaint. This, this idea that, oh, yeah, nobody really believes that there is such a thing as East and such a thing as West, right? These are just um, stereotypes and they're, they're rhetorical concepts, they're, they're constructs, but they don't really mean anything. And then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, I start seeing people use the same discourse. East and West. And you start seeing other people in positions of power using those terms. And I think, my God, this isn't just the deep past, that this is something that's right below the surface. And that at moments of tension, people really want to grab onto it and bring it back. That this is a discourse that is very tempting. I knew that there were voices speaking about Europe in this pure ideological sense, this idea of of wanting to close borders, of of wanting to keep out non-Europeans. But I also think we're starting to see the notion of Europe is just starting for some people to fall apart because it's being replaced by nationalism. Today on The Mirror of Antiquity, historian Nancy Basea takes us back to the year 1453, when a massive army of Ottoman Turks, Muslims, under the command of the 21-year-old Mehmed II, besieged and ultimately conquered the city of Constantinople. Nancy traces a line from that military defeat all the way to the terrorist attacks in New York City on September 11, 2001, and to the current rise of nationalist and anti-immigrant movements in the United States and Europe. These movements claim, among other things, that we need to purify our countries by preventing foreigners from crossing our borders and removing those who already have. They speak of a clash of civilizations between East and West. They say we need to protect and secure ourselves from those from the East, especially from Muslims. They say that Muslims' way of life is simply incompatible with European values, and that admitting them can only dilute and eventually destroy those values, which they identify as democracy, scientific inquiry, and, somewhat ironically, tolerance. They point to things like the September 11th attacks as proof that all Muslims are violently intent on the destruction of quote-unquote Western civilization. And they also point to the fall of Constantinople. The nationalists talk about Europe, the West, and Western civilization like their natural phenomena, regions on a map, facts of history. But as Nancy will tell us today, that's not true. These ideas had to be invented. Even something that seems as natural as a place on a map, Europe, a body of land, had to be invented and has meant different things at different times in history. Just think about Constantinople. The fall of that city is regarded by many as a major turning point in European history. But the city, modern Istanbul in Turkey, is not in what we now call Europe. Or what about the West? Sure, it includes the countries on the western side of the landmass that stretches from Portugal to Siberia, and the U.S. and Canada, 
but not the African countries that are west of Portugal, or as it's usually used, any South or Central American countries. But it does include Australia and New Zealand, which are so far west you might as well call them east. They're at the same longitude as Japan, Korea, and China. The idea of Europe, of the West, is just that, an idea. One that had to be invented, popularized, embedded in the public's mind. One that served and continues to serve a political purpose. That very often is at odds with the values people in the so-called West tend to see as our defining traits. Some listeners may wonder why we're talking about the 15th century on a show that's supposed to be about the ancient world. But isn't that term, just like European or Western, a construct as well? When did antiquity end? One endpoint that is often named is the year 330 CE, when the Roman Emperor Constantine officially moved the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople from Rome, where it had been for almost 1,000 years. Another endpoint for antiquity that is sometimes named is when Odoacer deposed the last emperor in Rome in 476. One more is the year 529, when the emperor Justinian closed Plato's academy in Athens. What date you choose for the end of antiquity just depends on what you think the essential quality of antiquity was that differentiates it from other periods. The fall of Constantinople in 1453 is more regularly considered the end of the Middle Ages. But its rulers saw themselves as the continuators of the ancient political and cultural traditions of Rome. It's not unreasonable to say that much of what we identify with antiquity lasted until then. There's another thing, too. The ancient Greco-Roman past is often connected to what is said to define Western civilization. So it's interesting if we find that the very idea of Western civilization was being invented, just as that past was, well, passing away. It's no coincidence that the group of men who invented Europe were, to a large extent, the same ones who are often called the Renaissance humanists, who wrote in a Latin based on ancient models, and who are said to have rediscovered and revived the literature and culture of ancient Greece and Rome. Much of the prestige that classical literature enjoys even today goes back to this period. These scholars were asserting the value of ancient literature at the same time that they were attempting to assert, for the first time, a European identity. So the history of classical scholarship is inseparable from the political history that Nancy is going to describe today, as we leave behind the ancient world and go forward in history, far forward, to a time more than a thousand years after most people say the Greco-Roman world had ceased to exist, to a time when the idea of Europe was being invented, an idea whose mixed and contested legacy continues to have repercussions for how we understand our history, our relationships with others in the world, and even our own identities as citizens of the region sometimes called the West. Welcome. I think we use the term Europe in a lot of ways without realizing how we're using it. So, you know, again, sometimes people just use it as a broad geographic designation. Spain is a country in Europe. Or, you know, I'm going to Europe over the summer. But it's also used in connection with the European Union. And then it has a very distinct political and sociocultural and legal aspect to it, which is very important to think about. One of the troubling ways people use it is people want to see it as having some sort of purity. That idea of it's an entity that needs to maintain its borders. 
that it has this history, this religious and ethnic history that a lot of people want to see as very closed and contained. They kind of erase just how multi-ethnic and multi-religious it was at times and want to see it subsumed under this notion of, of simply European Christendom. They're kind of, in that sense, taking us back to the Middle Ages in some ways, the way that, that some people use it. You know, the idea of Europe obviously goes back to the Greco-Roman era. People like Strabo and, 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 and others would, you know, certainly they would describe the continent of Europe. So they were aware of that and, and talked about it as a geographical area. And then after that, period. They had that notion of Europe. But what's important when you think about the Greco-Roman era is that people weren't going around saying, hey, I'm European. <laughs> they weren't. That wasn't an identity that they grabbed onto. So their identity was much more local. They were Athenians or they were Spartans. Maybe when they were feeling the need or, or you know, there was a, a pressing external threat, they would describe themselves as Hellenes, right, as Greeks. And the same thing goes for the Romans. I think the Romans, obviously, they were better at creating that idea of a group identity, that, that idea of being part of the Roman empire and trying to make it more extensive. But you still had that kind of particularism uh, among areas of the Roman Empire where, you know, they, they probably thought of themselves as provincials first. It expands in the Christian era. Then you start seeing terms like Christianitas being used to denote Christendom or the Res Publica Christiana, the Christian Republic. So that then also helps create a sense of a large collective. And it's not just confined to the continent of Europe. It takes in the Holy Land, North Africa, other areas in the Middle East. So it's more extensive than that. So the ancient Greeks and Romans, who are often said to have laid the foundations of European culture, didn't think of themselves as European, or if they did, it wasn't their primary identity. And it was an identity that included a lot of places that aren't considered parts of Europe today. People living under Roman rule in what we now call France or Spain or Serbia might identify as Romans. But so might people living in what we now call Syria or even Iran. In later periods, most people in the area we now call Europe still didn't think of themselves as Europeans. They thought of themselves as Christians or as members of one ethnic group or another. No, Europe as we know it was invented much more recently by a group of scholars and political leaders writing in the late 1400s who wanted to create unity in a region riven by internal conflicts. Before then, the word Europe was rarely used. People talked about Christendom or the Christian world. But after this period, the word Europe became common. One of the most prominent of these writers who invented the idea of Europe just happened also to be the Pope. Right now I'm working on a book on Pope Pius II, who reigned from 1458 to 1464. I call it an intellectual biography of him, and it has a very specific angle where uh, my interest is how he looked at and how he developed a concept of Europe and, and what it means to be European at this time in particular. Before he became Pope, he was known as Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini, so I refer to him as Aeneas. And he's just a fascinating individual. He's somebody you could call a Renaissance man in that traditional sense. He was a humanist. He was a diplomat and a secretary. He traveled all over Europe as part of his, his job serving members of the church. He, he was at the Council of Basel for many years in Switzerland. Then he served the, the Holy Roman Emperor 
emperor in Austria. He wrote literature, he wrote poetry, he wrote orations and treatises. So he wrote only in Latin. A few of his Italian letters survived. And then later in life, he entered the clergy, and he uh, very quickly rose to the ranks and became pope. What is not well understood about him is why he gets so hooked on this idea of Europe. What is it that motivates him? Where does it come from? And what are the ramifications? What I think is new and what is really taking hold in the 15th century, and he's one of the people who does it more than anyone and does it consistently, is that writers like himself, humanists like himself, they began to develop a notion of being European, that being European was somehow an identity that transcended what was commonly called Christendom beforehand, that it was a viable way of talking about the larger collective. You could equate Aeneas with a lot of ideas that, you know, we think of with, with quote unquote Western civilization. That that idea of the superiority of Western civilization, he was one of the advocates uh, for, for these notions that have taken root in ways that I think are still with us, ways that we need to continue to interrogate. I just think it's always good to go back to an earlier period and to say, let's look at a moment when someone who helped articulate this notion that we use today in this very reflexive way, where where did it come from? What prompted him to try to push this idea forward, to articulate it? And does that help us understand a little bit more where we are today? Where we are today is a world where Europe is a contested term. To many people, the word Europe embodies many of the great accomplishments of the human species. Democratic rule, scientific inquiry, freedom and tolerance. But this set of claims masks both a history that does not always reflect those values and a division over what Europe should stand for. For some people, Europe is best embodied by the European Union, a dream of a collaborative, peaceful, and mutually beneficial coalition of nations that commit to democratic institutions, protection of human rights, and tolerance of cultural difference. For others, Europe is something that needs to be protected and preserved from outsiders who either threaten to or willfully want to destroy the accomplishments that they believe secured Europe's political, technological, and cultural supremacy in the first place. Looking at Aeneas's concept of Europe and the world he tried to invent it for is one way of putting some distance between ourselves and this dispute because it reminds us that both visions of Europe disguise a history that does not always conform to the ideals the word is supposed to embody. For us in the U.S., debates about the purity of modern Europe or the efficacy and desirability of the European Union can feel like somebody else's problem. And yet, we have our own anxieties about immigration, about whether it is appropriate to speak of the United States as a continuation of European culture, and an ongoing tension between the values we say our country embodies and the effects of our laws and public discourse on the world. In many ways, the history of Nancy's family is a familiar American immigration story of Europeans coming to this country for a better life. In other ways, though, it speaks to the contradictions in our portrait of ourselves. Because although Nancy's ancestors were from what we call Europe, they were from countries from which immigration was restricted by federal law until relatively recently. And although her ancestors strove to become as American as possible, Nancy questions what these designations even mean and what histories they leave out. I 
grew up in central Jersey. While there were a few little Revolutionary War cemeteries or things like that, it, it was an area that just felt very recent, you know, very new. I come from a family of immigrants. My Three of my four grandparents were born in, in Europe. And I think that also affected their sense of history and that, you know, I think in, in a good way, they kind of felt like they needed to look forward, that their lives were here. I knew really only, only one of them well. He died when I was 10. It was interesting because growing up through my parents, I certainly had a sense that they were, you know, of, of Eastern European descent and that they knew scattered words and phrases from Polish or from Slovak that, that we learned. But they, their parents didn't want to speak Polish or Slovak around the house very much because they wanted them to speak perfect English. So they too wanted to practice their English. They wanted to make sure that it was always in good form. I think they saw their lives as just moving forward. They didn't speak a lot about the old country from what I, I know. They really believed in America. You know, they were so happy to be here. When I arrived at Rutgers, where I did my undergrad, these were things that were swirling around the back of my mind. I started to think, okay, so what area do I want to work in? And I was hoping for something creative, but I didn't know what that would be because I was not particularly great at art or music. So that was that avenue didn't seem like it was open to me. And I was reading an article uh, one day, um, you know, it was in some like women's magazine, uh, maybe like Glamour or something like that while I was working at the library. And I'm just, you know, slow day at the Cirque desk. And I'm flipping through and I say, oh, good careers for women. I say, okay, that's interesting. What do they have? And among them, they say college professor. I said, really? College professor? This is interesting. I feel like in some ways I'm trying to fill a hole that I feel like I have this deep family history that kind of got interrupted, that I don't fully know, I don't fully have access to, that I know really shaped them. And I've always been curious about that. So maybe that's part of what makes me interested in Europe to try to understand what it was like to live there before they left, before they became American. Nancy's ancestors had a concept of what it meant to be American, and they tried to live that concept by learning the new language, by teaching their children the new language, by trying to fit into this new place. But those ideas of what it means to be an American had to be created and are contested to this day. The same is true of the concept of Europe which had to be created, and which, Nancy argues, Aeneas created in response to three things. The fraying of the previous identity that united the people living in that region, the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453, and the political and religious divisions of the day. And one of the ways Aeneas tried to create an identity amid this dissent and crisis was to define Europe not by what it was, but by comparison to what it was not. One of the reasons you start to see Europe being used more in the 15th century is that the whole concept of Christendom is getting more complicated because of the schism with the papacy, that there's a greater sense of division. What, what does constitute Christendom? Is there one leader of Christendom? It's getting harder to talk about empire. The Holy Roman Empire certainly doesn't have the you know, sovereignty over everyone in Europe and even within Germany itself. There are a lot of people who resist that notion. But Aeneas draws the borders of Europe. I think where it really ends for him is where Latin Christendom ends. For instance, Russia is not included. Lithuania is. Russia is not. Um, the Ukraine is, but not Russia, So, which is also interesting today. You know, when you think about where does Russia stand in relation to the rest of Europe is an ongoing question. So one of the ways I see Aeneas creating a myth of Europe in his writings is when he was making some of these statements about Europe, one of the, the biggest spurs was they were doing it in opposition to the Ottoman Empire. 
that they were seeking a way to define themselves and to define themselves against, uh, you know, what was really a pretty serious military threat. On the one hand, he recognizes the differences in nationalities, as we would call them, you know, ethnicities, nations. And so he'll talk about, you know, the boldness of the Italians, the diligence of the Germans, the daring of the Spanish and things like that. So he he holds different countries up in different ways. He talks about their uh, valor and, and their, their strength and so forth. But he often does it as kind of the sense of like he's assembling a team. When he talks about, for instance, how we have to fight against the Ottomans, he'll list these countries and how great they are. But he's thinking of a larger collective. Right? He's not just saying, okay, you guys are living on the border over here. You should take care of this. He sees this as one collective where all the Europeans, as we would call them, they should be assisting one another. If they would just stop fighting each other, they would make an awesome team. So it comes out in many ways there. But you, you also just see him using the term Europe quite a bit. So he starts to use that in the same way that a few decades earlier people would prefer the term Christendom. And one of the reasons why he does that is simply when Constantinople falls, he really tries to make a distinction and say, this isn't just about Christianity versus Islam. He says at one point, they are on our soil. They have crossed into Europe. This is ours. So there's a real sense of territoriality there that even though the Ottomans already were in Europe, the word Europe starts to be used because of this sense of threat and trying to create a sense of unity against it. Europe was a way, I think, of trying to create a broader sense of us at a, at a time when people were feeling the need. He's saying there's never been a loss as significant as this one. Christians were feeling the need for unity because the Ottoman Empire had taken over the city of Constantinople, which we now know as Istanbul. It was a major blow. Constantinople was an ancient capital, going back to the Roman Emperor Constantine, who had moved the central government of the Roman Empire there in the 4th century CE. It was a center of learning, a center of culture and wealth and political power, and a center of religious authority. Before its conquest by the Ottomans, it was very clearly one of the great cities of the Christian world that was descended from the ancient Roman Empire. Constantine himself promoted it as the New Rome. But after the Ottoman conquest, it was no longer part of that world. It was now ruled by a sultan who practiced Islam, who had at his disposal vast imperial and military resources, and who looked more to the Middle East than to the West for cultural and artistic inspiration. Notice, I don't say that he looked more to the Middle East than he did to Europe, because the idea of Europe as a unified, meaningful entity did not exist when Constantinople fell to Mehmed the Conqueror. The idea of Europe was born as a response to this defeat, and the repercussions of that idea would be every bit as significant as those of the defeat itself. The fall of Constantinople, it takes place in 1453, and it came about for uh, a couple of reasons. Um, one is that the Ottoman Empire was kind of growing up around Constantinople increasingly. They have the opportunity to cross the straits into Greece in the 1340s. They're invited there by the one of the, the Byzantine emperors. There happens to be a civil war at the time. So um, while the civil war is going on, somebody gets the brilliant idea, hey, why don't we invite <laughs> the Ottoman Turks to come fight with us on our our behalf and uh, even forge a marriage.
marriage alliance over it. And it, it seems like a good idea, but once they've crossed over, it becomes a little hard to dominate them, to, to keep them from pursuing their own agenda. In any case, starting in the 1340s, 1350s, they begin to build an empire in Greece itself, and then in the Balkans. In 1451, Mehmed II comes to the throne, and he's 19 years old, and he is brilliant and uh, determined. Constantinople in particular was a jewel. It was, um, you know, represented the Eastern Roman Empire or just Rome itself for them. They, they referred to it as a room. And he wanted to take over that imperial center. He wanted, wanted to possess that, wanted to lay claim to that. So Mehmed starts to build uh, a fortress north of the city called Rumeli Hasari, and, and it's, it's about six miles north of the city. Then the, the Greeks are, are frantically sending messages to the West uh, asking for help, saying that you know, something big is about to happen, you need to assist us. And the Latin church, Western Europeans in general, they had been interested in helping the church in particular. For a brief period, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church and the, the Roman Catholic Church reunited at the Council of Florence in 1439. And as part of that, the Westerners were expected to send a crusade that the papacy promised that they would do this to help relieve Constantinople, which they knew would be endangered. But it was clear that the Greeks, most of the Greeks were not following <laughs> along with the Union, that they thought it was uh, reprehensible. Um, they had longstanding grievances against the Latins, and they didn't trust them. Even as the Ottomans are building up their power, the church is still sending the message saying, well, give us assurances that the Union has been put into place. We want the mass celebrated in Hagia Sophia, for instance. So it really set a bad tone, and it put the emperor Constantine the 11th in a very delicate position. He tried not to alienate the Catholic Church, tried not to alienate his people. One of the shrewdest things that he did when he was offered the crown, he was actually not in Constantinople at the time. He was he was in the Morea. He was crowned there privately. He didn't wait to go back to Constantinople because if he attempted to be crowned there, he would have to be very public about which rite he was crowned under. Is this going to be a Latin rite? Is this going to be an Orthodox rite? You know, Mehmed, he assembles a troop, an army of some 80,000 to 100,000 troops. It's enormous. It's just, you know, was, was absolutely phenomenal. He arrives outside the city in early April, and he has land troops. He's brought a small naval force with him, and they set about trying to surround the city. And the Greeks are, they've prepared as well as they can. They have some small forces that the Latins have sent, you know, very inadequate to their needs. The Venetians, who have been trading in the city, many of them living there, Genoese, uh, living across the harbor in Galata, they've offered some assistance, particularly the Venetians. So some of their ships have stayed behind and they, they offer to help defend the city. They have these tremendous fortifications. And if they could just hold their position, then that is, you know, what they're really hoping for is not to defeat the Turks, but just to hold out. And meanwhile, they've sent frantic messages to <laughs> the Pope again and to, the, to Venice and saying, they're here now. OK, you really have to do something. So they fight very hard. They have some artillery. Um, they have a lot of archers and such. But Mehmed has brought just everything in the kitchen sink. Not only does he have a giant army, he has been working with a cannon founder by the name of Urban, who was maybe Hungarian, Transylvanian, German, we're not sure. But um, in any case, he, he develops this enormous, powerful cannon that has to be pulled by several teams of oxen. And that in and of itself, scholars have argued, that probably didn't bring the walls down as much as other artillery, other cannon that they set up and then kind of used in triangulation um, to take down the walls. But the psychological impact of that cannon was just withering. The, the noise that it created, it made everything vibrate and created tremors. He really made it clear that he was there to conquer the city and he was going to do it quickly.
The emperor was reported to have said, you know, the city is not mine to give. This is the notion that it was given to to the Greeks by God and that it's theirs to protect. And at one point, Mehmed, just brilliant siegecraft, he has his men drag ships overland <laughs> um, so that they can get into the harbor because the Greeks had closed off the harbor with a, a sea chain, with a boom. And, you know, that protected them to some extent. But he gets around that. He has them build a pontoon bridge, a floating bridge, basically of barrels that are lashed together so that they can cross from Para across the harbor. And and what that means is instead of fighting the battle on one front along the walls, they have to thin out what little forces they have along the harbor as well. And that weakens them all the more. But in the end, the dawn of May 29th, the wall is breached. There's a breakdown in the chain of command. And one of the Genoese generals who was there helping to defend them, he's struck and uh, wounded. And the story goes that he allows himself to be carried away to a ship's to receive medical treatment. And that leads to a breakdown in discipline. And at that point, everybody just starts to lose their sense of what they're supposed to be doing. They lose their focus. And that's the moment when the Ottomans really break through. The emperor dies in battle. His body is never found. Although Mehmed claims to have, have retrieved his head and has it stuffed and sent around as a trophy to, to other courts, he, he dies with the city. And hundreds of thousands of people are, are rounded up and, and taken into captivity. So it's a really emotional battle. It's one where I think the Greeks fight incredibly hard. The Ottomans fight incredibly hard. Mehmed thought of every possible thing and he was prepared. So, you know, what he was going for was speed. He knew that there was a very good chance if this took too long that forces would come from Western Europe and, and everything would be over. And he was right. After this catastrophic defeat, Aeneas and others in the West went into overdrive to vilify the Ottomans. The idea of a so-called clash of civilizations between cultural and religious identities rather than between nations is sometimes associated with the period following the Cold War in the 20th century, when the United States and our allies in Europe found it advantageous to define ourselves as Western in relation to the perceived threat of Islam to our way of life. But when we look at Aeneas trying to create a European identity in response to the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople, We can observe him following many of the same lines of argument and trading on many of the same tropes that are recognizable from American portrayals of the Soviet Union in the Cold War or anti-Islamic rhetoric following the September 11th attacks. And we can observe Aeneas falling into many of the same traps of willfully misrepresenting those he wants to paint as other and of idealizing his own history and culture in order to paint theirs as barbaric. Aeneas is no friend of the Ottoman Turks and basically spent most of his later career finding ways to paint them in very negative rhetorical terms. He was creating a notion that, for instance, in Europe, we don't have human rights violations, what we would call them today, that the Ottomans regularly commit human rights violations in warfare, and that their attacks on cities, their attacks on peoples cross a line into what was often called barbarism in ways that Europeans don't. Western Europeans in particular do not. And there's a real disingenuousness about that, that it's a, it's a very dishonest look at history. They were ignoring things that had happened, you know, in their own recent past by doing that. The Ottomans did engage in raids. They would do that sometimes to, as a precursor to conquest 
kind of soften up an area, make it weaker before they sent the troops in. But in that sense, they were like the Romans, right? The Romans did exactly the same thing, where they would use these terrorizing, punishing raids, and then then they would send the legions in. I don't know that the Ottomans were doing anything that was that unusual. Granted, I, I think there was something about the fall of Constantinople that kind of tripped people's sensitivities because it was a a very large-scale sack. There were about 50,000 people in the city, and most of them were civilians. And most of them were rounded up and either sold into slavery or held for ransom. And that's something that Europeans weren't really used to seeing, that there might have been some taking of captives and such, but they really weren't practicing slavery on that scale at that point in time. So so it was alarming, but it still doesn't explain, and it certainly doesn't excuse how they, they tried to create this very moralistic sense that the Ottomans did things that Western Europeans didn't. We always have to bear in mind that as he's saying all these great things about Europe, he's often saying the opposite about Asia or about the Ottomans in particular. So there's often that implied sense. The, the way he describes, for instance, a very disingenuous portrayal of, of Ottoman learning, right, tries to make it look like that they were still nomadic and very few of them embrace learning and, and it's not very good learning and, you know, that they don't, they don't value it in the way that we do. And that's just not true. The Ottomans supported learning to a very large extent. In fact, I was uh, part of a workshop at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin where we were looking at, it's, it's called Before Copernicus. And in fact, our essays are going to come out this year. And And one of the things that we all learned, this was historians of science and historians and other scholars working together looking at this, is there's a very strong argument that's been made that Copernicus's quote-unquote discovery about heliocentrism and, and the calculations in particular that he used came by way of the Ottoman Empire, that they probably were the result of work that was being done in Central Asia and then through the Ottoman Empire and somehow through a path we don't know made its way westward. But Aeneas doesn't talk about any of this. I don't know if he wasn't aware of it, but he certainly doesn't acknowledge it. And I I think it's also interesting that for very long, people thought Copernicus was a lone genius, that he came up with these ideas on his own. We've created a myth of European exceptionalism, that that we have all the good ideas, right? And when I say we, I mean Europeans, that they they are the ones who, who discovered all these things. But they got so many ideas coming by way of the Ottoman Empire or by way of Egypt or North Africa or Islamic Spain that haven't received the full credit that they deserve, that are built upon, and they they make them look like they're fully European discoveries, but they're not. An article that I, I recently wrote, one possibly good thing that came out of this is I think it was the first time that really forced European thinkers to start thinking about ethics and warfare that opportunity to reflect on what had happened to Constantinople freed them up to think about what are the rights of civilians, because they could criticize somebody that they weren't working for. They could criticize uh, people who they were not directly affiliated with in any way. So in that sense, it was good that they really started thinking about how should warfare be conducted when it happens? What kind of protections should we expect for people? What's the spillover effect? And I think that down the line, a couple generations later, you see other humanists like Erasmus take up that question and point it right at Europeans saying, how are we conducting war? We commit atrocities here constantly. So in that sense, I think it it helped open a valuable discussion. But what worries me is that I still sometimes hear people today saying things like, Europeans have a moral high ground that others don't. If the Europeans were so, you know, adept at this, then they should have reached that conclusion centuries earlier. <laughs> they should have, without without all the, the um, bloodshed and, and, and the horror that, that led to it. 
because I think they have this sanitized view of their own history. They completely forget about the Holocaust at times, right? I mean, they just, you know, they, they don't want to um, engage that at all. And they, they just glance over the things that are uncomfortable. Nancy isn't saying that Aeneas should have just opened his arms to the Ottomans, who were very clearly a serious military threat. She's simply pointing out that the rhetoric used against the Ottomans was lopsided, even deceptive, in ways that are still recognizable today in the way Muslims who immigrate to Europe and the United States are talked about. Earlier this year, Steve Bannon, who was for a time U.S. President Trump's chief strategist, was traveling around Europe giving a speech in which he told nationalist audiences to wear the accusation of racism like a badge of honor. But long before he worked in the White House, he was fond, too, of pointing to famous military conflicts between the Ottomans and armies in countries we now call European as models for how Europe should treat Muslims today. It's the same set of rhetorical moves that Aeneas made. Vilify the other as an existential threat to your way of life, and try to erase any commonality you may have with them. It also makes a new move, which is to claim that a highly trained and well-armed military, such as Mehmed brought to Constantinople, is comparable to boats of hungry and penniless refugees. It's very clear that the Ottomans were moving into Eastern Europe, that they were taking areas in, in the Mediterranean. And after Aeneas died, in fact, they, they conquered the city of Otranto in southern Italy, and they held it for a year. They came within shooting distance of Venice, pretty much, on their, their raids at one point in the 1470s. So, you know, they had reason to be concerned. So you don't want to come down too hard on them and say that they were just being chauvinistic or they were being, you know, completely biased. I think they, they were trying to motivate a defense. They were directly in the path of of an expansionist state. But I think that that sense of defensiveness is something worth reflecting on. Is that part of why a lot of people like that notion and they retreat to it in that way? For some people, there's a defensiveness, I think, that's at the root of that, and we need to be aware of it. You hear some people, for instance, like Steve Bannon, he, he gave this speech in Rome, I think in 2014, where he was trying to evoke these key battles against Muslim troops. So one that happened in the 8th century, the Battle of Poitiers, where Charles Martel's army stopped this invading Arab force that was coming up from Spain. They had conquered Spain pretty much at this point. We're continuing to push into France. You know, it's debatable as to whether or not they were looking to conquer France or it was just a raiding party. But that has gone on to take take on this kind of iconic status of holding the borders of Christendom. So Bannon cites that one. He also cites the uh, Battle for Vienna in the early 16th century, where the Ottomans come very very close to taking the city of Vienna, which would have put them now in Central Europe uh, as opposed to Eastern Europe. And that that is held as another moment where the borders of Europe, the borders of Christendom are defended. But what I think is important is to recognize how different the situation is today. If you're talking about, first of all, <laughs> if you're talking about refugees coming in, it's a very different situation. It's not the same thing as being directly under attack in Europe itself. And obviously the refugees... They, they fall in a completely different category as far as I'm concerned. You know, I find it really troubling when anybody tries to suggest otherwise. And I think if people know enough about the context of what Aeneas is saying, they would understand it's not the same thing. You're looking at an organized 
powerful army that is looking to expand into and take over. This is imperialism and nothing less. The refugees, these are individuals and they don't represent any state. They're coming on their own. They're looking for, for refuge. They're looking for asylum, possibly temporary asylum or looking to build a new home. But they're coming, they're coming with nothing. They don't represent any kind of a threat. They're not an organized military force. So you know, I find it really reprehensible when people try to say that this is like a second wave of Islam. This is a second invasion that somehow you can equate the two. The two couldn't be more different. I think there's a real desire to just kind of create these boxes and say, you know, is this about Islam versus Christianity or is this about Islam versus Europe, you know, or Islam versus the West, I think is one of the, the most dangerous <laughs> ideas of all. The notion that you can have this unified Islam, that everybody agrees to what that is, and that they also are automatically opposed to this entity called the West whatever that's supposed to mean. It flattens all the diversity that you have among Muslims, that you have among Christians, that you have among Europeans. I can tell you from the Christian perspective, having studied that, I can see all the many ways in which this notion of a united Christendom constantly falls apart. It was harder to keep it together than it was to just recognize that this was not a functioning entity. Aeneas's playbook, like Steve Bannon's, was to make Europe look perfect and Islam barbaric. And both claims are wrong. Europe has its own violent and even barbaric history. And the Ottomans promoted scientific inquiry and practiced religious tolerance long before Europeans did. But we also don't want to go too far in the other direction either and ignore the darker side of the Ottomans or anything valuable in the history of European thought. This is the difference between the politician like Aeneas or Bannon and the historian. Things are never so simple as the politician needs them to be to serve his purposes. The historian has to grapple with the good and the bad, the Holocaust and the Enlightenment, the multiculturalism of the Ottoman Empire, and its totalitarian political structure. What the historian gains by this, however, is the ability to see things in pieces, to see where we can learn from them, and they from us, and where there may even be some surprising common ground. As much as you want to praise the Ottoman Empire, there are many things in it to praise. You don't want to lose sight of the fact that it was still an empire. They were conquering areas against their will. That is that is the definition of imperialism. And there was that sense of religious hierarchy that, as I say, ultimately to really get to the top for most people, you needed to convert to Islam if you were not already born to it. So, so that prevents it from our truly modern notion of it. But for its time, it was pretty progressive, pretty open, and they gave a lot of agency to local communities. They allowed Christian communities and Jewish communities to have a lot of self-rule, and that was really important for the time. Mehmed does use the language of holy war. And jihad, of course, is a complicated notion, right? It doesn't, doesn't simply mean holy war. And he tries to paint himself as a defender of the faith. But I don't know how far he tries to push that because within two generations, they're going to be attacking other regions, other Muslim regions like Egypt and Syria and such. And they're not necessarily going to see them as, you know, they don't recognize them as all being on the same Islamic side, <laughs> that, that this is political for them. So the way that I tend to see it, I don't know if he was necessarily waging this war or saw expansion of his empire as being about 
the greater glory of Islam per se, or if it was more about his dynasty, more about his name, that he was looking to create a name for himself, that he was looking to build upon what his family had done, to leave something for his successors. And because this is someone who really idolized people like Alexander the Great, he wanted to be a conqueror in that vein. I think that at the same time, there was a sense of hierarchy with, with the religions, that while the Ottoman Empire was pretty tolerant, as, as pre-modern empires go, that Christians could practice their faiths without being disturbed, Jews as well. There are some complications there because of the Janissary system. It was known as the Dev Shermet system. The Janissary system was set up by the Ottomans to help increase their army. So they basically created a wing of their army of, of very highly trained young men, and they would take them between the ages of 8 and 18, take them away from their families. They would bring them to live with other families in other parts of Anatolia, far away from where they came from, which was usually in the Balkans. And they would have them learn Turkish they would convert them to Islam, and they would a lot of times just perform domestic tasks, work on farms and things like that. And as soon as they were ready, they would start learning military training. And the most talented ones would be sent to the palace school, and they would be trained to be part of the bodyguard and the administration, the bureaucracy. Others would be basically like the Marines, an elite fighting force, the, the best, most trusted. If you're supposed to leave people to practice their faith, you're not supposed to round them up for military service and convert them, which is what happened to these young boys. That's technically an abrogation of Sharia law. Uh, a lot of people argue, and, and I think with good reason, that this may have been something that a lot of local Christians thought was a good idea because it gave their children a place to go. It gave them a way to work their way up in the hierarchy. And a lot of young men who came out of this system became great rulers. They rose to incredible ranks. And they didn't sever ties with their families. They didn't sever ties with their hometowns. They actually came back and tried to help. They remembered them fondly, right? And and so it's, you know, it's definitely multicultural, multi-ethnic. It's not too far off to say, yeah, that, that the notion of a cosmopolitan Europe has a lot in common with the Ottoman Empire, with the exception that there's no hierarchy. The Europeans aren't the only ones who can distort the history of Islam for their own oppressive and regressive political purposes. Steve Bannon and people like him want us to think that all Muslims are the same, and that refugees from Syria present an existential threat comparable to the Ottoman army. Meanwhile, the so-called Islamic State, or ISIS, is doing something similar as they try to bring all Muslims worldwide under their control by any means necessary, even if it means killing Muslims who disagree with them. One could hardly imagine a more unlikely bedfellow for European nationalists. Yet ISIS also vilifies the Ottoman Empire, but for opposite reasons. On the one hand, we have Aeneas and Bannon saying the Ottoman Empire was a barbaric autocracy. On the other, we have ISIS condemning the Ottomans for being too secular, too tolerant, too multicultural. It's a good reminder that the reality of the Ottoman period is not what's at issue. It's how it's being used as a symbol. ISIS is definitely more scary. Um, ISIS is really frightening because I think ISIS is trying to recreate the medieval caliphate that never existed. The things that they do are things that medieval Muslims didn't do. They're using tactics, torture, forced conversion and such that you really didn't see happening in the Middle Ages. So in a sense, I feel insulted on behalf of medieval Muslims that they are they are trying to represent themselves in this way because medieval Muslims, even the conquerors, they, they had a, a much more broad-minded 
integrated approach, a much more tolerant approach. They would look to secure an area like a lot of conquerors would do. But they they had a, a plan in place for how to accommodate religious difference in ways that a lot of Christians didn't at the time. They dealt better with their religious minorities for long periods of time than Christians dealt with Jewish populations. I don't see a comparison between ISIS and the Ottoman Empire. You can't compare them to a dynasty that grew up like the Ottomans. You know, the Ottomans, they didn't just grow up through intimidating people. They were very good at creating coalitions. You know, they they brought a lot of Christians in to fight on their side initially. They had a lot of Greeks join them as well and Muslims. So it certainly wasn't just a Christian versus Muslim thing. The Ottomans, I think, were more diverse from the very beginning and didn't just define it as as a religious issue. I I see the Ottomans as ultimately (laughs) much more confident and legally secure. They didn't do the kinds of rogue and radical things that ISIS does. They certainly weren't blowing up institutions. You know, they weren't blowing up monuments and things like that. They weren't slaughtering people just to make a point, right? They weren't using that kind of intimidation. ISIS's concept of the caliphate is they wanted to be much more ideologically pure than it than it was, that they would like to erase the existence of all non-Muslims. And in fact, Muslims who don't agree with their agenda, that they have attacked many Muslims, that no one is safe who disagrees with them. They are not consensus builders or coalition builders in the sense that I think the caliphate, they recognized that they had moved into a lot of areas where people had some different ideas. And Indian Muslims didn't necessarily believe exactly the same thing or practice in exactly the same way as North African Muslims might. But they were more accommodating of that. They understood that there were some differences. There were key things that, of course, had to be observed that made up the core of Islam. But they were not as doctrinally focused and intolerant in the way that ISIS is. For instance, I remember having this conversation with with Muslim students where we would talk about heresy. And is there a comparison to that, that you see Christian terms of heresy within Islam? They say, no, we don't. We don't say that, you know, okay, I might be a Shiite and this person might be Sunni, but I don't say that that person isn't Islamic or that, that they're not a Muslim. So they don't recognize that kind of exclusion, I think, that ISIS is trying to put forth. They're, they're trying to evoke a past that didn't exist. I think that they are overlooking how broad-minded and also how learned medieval uh, Islam was. That That's one of the heartbreaking things for me as a scholar. As they blow up monuments and they destroy libraries and such, I mean, Muslims, they wanted to learn from all the areas that they moved into. They wanted to absorb that learning. They wanted to build upon it. The notion of just obliterating it would be so reprehensible to them that Islam should be secure enough to stand on its own. You don't need to destroy people who disagree. There's something similar going on in the way ISIS presents a distorted version of what it means and doesn't mean to be a Muslim and the way Steve Bannon does. And neither of them is that different from what Aeneas did by vilifying the Ottomans and praising his own region back in the 15th century. They're all trying to erase variety among Muslims. They're all trying to glorify their own histories and worldviews. And they're all trying to create a version of the past that never existed. And this isn't just something they do to Muslims. They do it to Christians too. ISIS sees all Christians as infidels and unbelievers who need to be killed or forced to convert, even though there is significant theological overlap between what many Christians believe and what many Muslims believe. Steve Bannon, in a less overtly violent but equally pernicious way, wants to erase the variety among Christians as well with his you're either with us or you're against us mentality. He wants his anti-Islamic version of Christianity to be the unifying designator of European identity, 
just as Aeneas sought to invent a European identity when Christian unity was fraying. So when Bannon equates being European with being Christian, he's erasing so much, not just the variety of Christians, but the very origin of the idea of Europe. It's a convenient erasure for him because it erases the people within his own culture who don't support his hateful views. The one thing that, that made me feel some sense of connection to the Renaissance and the Middle Ages was growing up Catholic. That was the one thing that gave me a sense of connection to European history in a way that made sense to me, that felt somewhat direct from going to church, from you know being in, in these architectural recreations of Gothic churches and such. And you know from what I learned going to Catholic school, learning about the, the history of the church, the lives of saints, popes, people who lived in the Middle Ages, that even though my people <laughs> were, were not you know from Western Europe, they're from Eastern Europe, it still kind of felt like it was part of my experience in a broad sense. I fairly recently returned to the church, you know, under Pope Francis. I think he's such a breath of fresh air. His focus on matters of the spirit and compassion, I think, is just truly amazing. And that's one of the things I like about him is he's trying to redirect Catholics to think about their sense of community in a way that isn't about ethnicity or about class or about borders or labels, any number of things, that he's really trying to focus on the spirit. A lot of people would argue he hasn't done certain things that they would like to see him do. Maybe he's not as progressive as he could be, and I I understand that and I hear that. But I find that message so attractive in Catholicism when I I think about the the long history of Catholicism, people like St. Francis, right, and, and various other mystics, and just that openness, what attracted them to Christianity in general. And then I see the way that Catholicism and, and, you know, and other forms of Christianity are used in an exclusive way by people like Steve Bannon, who want to define it, you know, in this very conservative way, this notion that it, it is an identity that should exclude other people and that they should be abruptly and roughly excluded instead of thinking about ways you can have outreach to fellow human beings, regardless of what they believe or don't believe. So one of my connections between being Catholic and this notion of Europe is that I think there's a real danger. I think a lot of times when when people hear Catholic, they think that automatically I'm politically conservative. (laughs) They think automatically I'm very knee-jerk, chauvinistic and such. And I think it's sad because I don't think that that's the experience that a lot of Catholics have to begin with. I don't think that that's how we define ourselves. But it is the way that some people speaking on behalf of Catholics have. And I don't like how... I've seen Bannon try to make it look like his conservative agenda, his very bigoted agenda, is in line with Catholic interests and speaks not only for Catholic interests, but European interests, that somehow all of this combines, right? That it has to be about this kind of exclusionary vision of what Europe is supposed to mean or the West is supposed to mean. So that's, you know, I guess in some ways I'm just trying to For me, it helps me claim my sense of the past, my sense of attachment to the church, to say that one of the reasons I can still be a Catholic is that I I see the vast history of it. I know there was a time when there were women deacons, if not women priests. I know there was a time when priests were married, right? Right up until the year 1120, priests were married in the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, in the Greek Orthodox Church, they, they were married all along. They continue to be married. I see a lot more variability in the Catholic past. It can be very inclusive. I try to complicate that notion that being Christian and European has to mean one thing or that Europe has to by definition be Christian. It's useful to know the history because when you do you know its variety. 
You know, sometimes the past needs to be brought back, but sometimes the past needs to be left behind. And you know that the way things are now is not how they've always been. In this case, you realize that Europe hasn't always been Europe. That idea had to be invented. And it wasn't invented to name a well-defined region on a map that everyone agreed on, or even to describe a unified cultural group that had been around for a long time. It was invented because of a threat, as a response to the threat. So if you know the history, when you hear people say that Europe needs to be defended, you know this gets the history exactly backwards. It's not that this beautiful thing Europe existed and so needs to be protected. It's that there was a perceived threat, so we invented this concept. The threat precedes the concept. It did in the 15th century, and it does today. And there's no clearer proof that the concept of Europe that these people are pushing is an arbitrary one. One they've invented, just like Aeneas did, to serve their political goals, and that a different concept is possible. What about something like this? What about a concept of Europe based not on a false claim that we discovered or have special access to those values, but a humble recognition that these are the best ideas that the combined wisdom of worldwide civilizations have produced for a human society to prosper? Let's strive for them, together. One of the reasons that it's it's very useful to read Aeneas and other thinkers like him in the 15th century is to see their rhetoric where they're talking about how special and wonderful Europe is and doing it in this context that because we're not the Ottoman Empire, because supposedly the Ottoman Empire is the exact opposite. And it echoes things that people are still saying today, or I should say people today are saying the same things without realizing they're echoing. Someone writing in the 15th century who's doing it for specific rhetorical purposes when they were under attack, they weren't feeling that good about themselves. It's a response that comes out of insecurity. It's one that comes out of fear. It's understandable, but it's not really reflecting the reality even of the time. It certainly isn't useful for us to keep going back to it and to say that this is what Europe is, this is what Islam is. I guess the reason I care about notions of Europe are similar to the reasons I care about notions of crusade or notions of East versus West. I care about it when it's misused. I care about it when it becomes a justification for behavior that I consider unjust, for behavior that I consider to be discriminatory and backward. But I also care about it because I think that it runs counter to a lot of the agendas of progressive thinkers in Europe today, that they're not looking necessarily to recreate the Europe of the 15th century. They are looking at what they have to deal with today, that they are much more interested in cosmopolitanism. They're interested in diversity. The notion of Europe in, in that Renaissance sense can be very confining and can be used simply to other people. That's one of the ways that people use it reflexively. Aeneas was trying to pull everything out of his rhetorical knapsack that he could in order to help make this case. Yes, part of it is in opposition to the Ottoman Empire, but also part of it, I think he did believe that Europeans perhaps had more in common than they knew they had, especially when certain important interests were at stake, that with the right amount of persuasion, with the right amount of organization, they could band together more. So in some ways, I, I see him as foreseeing the idea of a European Union, that that wouldn't have been foreign to him, that something like this could take place, that Europeans could reasonably act together in one another's interests. 
I don't want to say that Europe can't be a good positive term. If you want an idea of Europe, have it something that's based in what the European Union are trying to do today. Wonderful things have been done um, in the name of the European Union. What are they creating through legal means, through trade agreements, through economic development and such, through human rights work? What are they trying to do that, that really does speak to the best of, of European interests, the most progressive European interests at the moment? But when you try to superimpose on that these older notions of ethnic superiority, right, or cultural superiority, then it's very troublesome because you're trying to take ownership over these notions of the past that didn't even really fully exist at the time. They made people feel better about a time when they were feeling very insecure, very divided. They don't help us to move the ball forward. So I guess maybe part of the reason I'm attracted to this idea of Europe is to help people think of the term in different ways, to realize some of the traps that you can fall into rhetorically when you use it, to realize the ways that people use it aren't always truthful or helpful, and that it's a meaning that people can choose to invest in different ways, ways that are much more positive, that are about what people want to see in Europe today, but not necessarily what the past used to represent and therefore must represent today. Nancy Basea has taught history at Vassar College since 1998. She and another colleague here at Vassar have recently published a translation and commentary of Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini's De Europa, or Europe, in which Aeneas describes the histories, geographies, local customs, and regional identities for all the parts of what we now, thanks largely to him, call Europe. There are links to this book and some of Nancy's other work on our webpage, miraofantiquity.com. I also have a link there to a great article by Kwame Anthony Appia called there's no such thing as Western civilization, which touches on many of the issues considered in today's show. The Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, with Lucy Rosenthal and Yasmin Smolens, and with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Our recording engineer is Baynard Bailey, and Emma Schulte designed our logo. Special thanks on this episode to Allison Sugino. Music on this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Kink Slap Simeon, Mamach Kadem, Turku Nomads of the Silk Road, Naran, Seya, and The Orientalist. If you like the show, your best bet is really to subscribe. We don't put out a ton of episodes, so it won't overwhelm your feed and you won't miss any of the great episodes we have coming up. You can subscribe right now on whatever device you're listening on or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.